If you guys have your Bibles, while I cough and hack my way through, uh, open up Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin uh, verse 7. We're going to be taking a look this evening at uh, the next to last church. We're looking at the Church of Philadelphia. Many of you may know uh, the Church of Philadelphia is one of those unique. There's two unique churches of which the Lord really doesn't have much good to say. There's two unique churches of which the Lord doesn't have really anything bad to say. Uh, One of those earlier was Smyrna, and the second one is Philadelphia. Uh, It's always, to me, those are challenging letters to look at because... It helps me see two very clearly I don't want to be, and two pretty clearly that I I want to emulate, want to try to follow, see what was it that set these churches apart that we might uh, uh, just be able to take heed to what God's Word lays out for us. So let's take a look. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 13. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come down and worship before your feet and to know I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up this scripture to you tonight. God, we ask that by your Spirit you would give us clarity. God, as we uh, come to the Word, Lord, we ask that you would, um, Father, just guide us and lead us. Prepare our hearts to receive the seed, Lord God, that, that our ears indeed are open. And that our eyes are eyes that can see. That we would take your word and seek to make application in our life. Not to be hearers only, but doers also. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in this place. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we look. Remember, every one of the letters begins with a description of Jesus Christ, right? It starts off with the one who, of whom... The letter is being written. Who's writing it? So who is, who is or how is Jesus describing himself in the letter to Philadelphia? It says in verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things 
says, He who is holy, he who is true. First thing we see is an emphasis on his character. The character of Jesus Christ. He who is holy. It's the aseity of God. The transcendence of God. The idea of being holy is that he is holy other. Separate. He, we're not like him. He's not like us. To be set apart. You and I want to be set apart. We don't want to be just like everybody else. That's the act of being holy. But in and of ourselves, I don't have the ability to make myself holy. Who does that? Jesus. Why? Because he is holy. He is holy. I'm not. But in Christ, right? When I'm in Christ, when I put on my wedding garment, when I'm clothed in Christ, his holiness becomes my holiness. His righteousness becomes my righteousness, right? It's in Christ. It's all about what he gives us because of a relationship that we have with him. He is the holy one. And he is the true one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Pilate was standing there at the crucifixion, you remember he asked a question to Jesus. He says, Quedest veritas? And he walks away. He should have waited for the answer. Quedest veritas means what is truth? And he walked away. The conversation was over. He was standing next to the truth when he asked that question. What is the truth? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Where do we <coughs> come to know that truth? How do we plug into that truth? That's what the Word of God is all about, right? The Word of truth. In the beginning, John, John tells us in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? The Word. Jesus is God the Word. God the Son, God the Word. He, we see and read and can apply that truth because we have the word of God, which is always true. Always right. It is that ultimate foundation upon which we can build everything else. So he begins with that character. He's holy. He's true. What, do you, what does he say next? <clears throat> he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts. Shuts and no one opens. So first we see his character, then we see his control. Who's in control? Who's, who's the sovereign? Who who's, holds our lives together? Right? It's Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18, he lays out for us not only that he created all things, and that all things uh, were created for him and by him and through him, but he also says that in him all things consist. He's holding it all together. He keeps it all held together. He has the key of David. Now when we look at that, it's an interesting phrase for sure. What's the key of David? What's that all about? Well, there's, a, there's an Old Testament story or illusion that he's making here that we want to take a look at. So let's quickly look at Isaiah chapter 22. And we'll see in the Word of God the example that he's painting for us. Look, it says in Isaiah 22 verse 20, Then it shall be in that day... <coughs> excuse me, that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Listen, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open 
and no one shall shut. He shall shut, and no one shall open. Sounds familiar, right? Okay. What's, what's going on here? I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. The offspring and prosperity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed, will be cut down and fall on the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. The illusion of the key of David was a picture of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, through whom you had to come in order to get access to the king. In order to get access to the king, King David, you went through Hilkiah. He had the keys. He's the only one who could open. And if he shut the door, you're not coming in. If he opens the door, nobody's going to shut it. He has the authority. Now consider who we're talking about in Revelation. Revelation, we're talking about Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many people come to the Father except through Him? Right? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only one with the key. I'm the only one with entrance. In order to be saved, there's one name under heaven... By which men must be saved. What is that name? It's the name Jesus. Jesus. We only can have entrance before the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. He has the key of David. He has control. He has the character. We see that. (coughs) And he also lays out a challenge. He says, I can open, uh, I can set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. See, I have set before you. Look at verse 8. I know your works, he declares. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. I've opened the way for you. This, the church of Philadelphia, becomes, uh, to me, the church of the open door. The church for which God has opened the door of opportunity. He's opened up the door for missions. He's opened up the door for ministries. given them favor and opportunity. His challenge to them. His his knowledge of them. Look, I know you guys. And I've put in front of you an open door. God puts open doors in front of people who will walk through open doors. People who will step out and see what it is that God has for them. In fact, we see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8, it says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a great and effective door has opened to me, though there are many adversaries. So what's Paul talking about? i got an opportunity to minister. So I'm going to minister as long as that door is open. As long as that door is open, I'm going to walk through it. Uh, Several years ago, before I came to Idaho, Kathy and I started an outreach in 29 Palms. And probably had been going out to 29 Palms to start a church for about a year we were probably up to about uh, somewhere around 80 people in 29 Palms and started looking for a building. As we were looking for a building, the Marine Corps called. They're uh, the head of the chaplains in the Marine Corps on base at 29 Palms was going to Iraq, was going to be there for seven months. He didn't want to turn over 
the the chaplain on base, the, the, the chapel on base to one of the chaplains he had there. He had the authority <clears throat> to open up a door and provide an opportunity for us to go on base and do services on base. So we took all that stuff to the board at, uh, at Joshua Springs. And board members prayed over it. We were right at the brink. Either start a church at 29 Palms or go on base. And the decision was made that God had opened a door that was not going to stay open. And currently he was going to give us the freedom to go on base and, and speak to uh, Marines, hold services and Bible studies for the Marines what a great opportunity that was. So we made an attempt to move the church. It was just difficult to get everybody on base. I don't know, ever since 9-11, you can't just walk on base. I don't know if you guys knew that. <clears throat> but So we, um, we started going, and effectively the, the plant in 29 Palms just kind of stalled out and, and didn't go anywhere. But for the next several years, we were on base serving as the teaching pastor at 29 Palms Base, uh, um, MCRD 29 Palms, for the next couple of years. Until a chaplain came who did not know Joseph. <laughs> and when that happened, he said, uh, why are you teaching? I got all these guys. And so I left the base and they came on. <clears throat> I, for a long time, had a plaque in my office that said... Uh, one of the things the Marines gave me was a K-bar uh, that was engraved uh, for the time that I spent with them in their chapel. That's what it means to see an open door and walk through it. Uh, that open door costs something. There was already a year's work put into a plant that ultimately ended up just fizzling out because all those people couldn't get on base. But the opportunity to go at the time when when uh, desert storms going on and Marine are being shipped out and we're doing funerals monthly probably for guys who got killed over there, the opportunity to be on base where I could get to them and share the gospel with them and spend time teaching them was, was a pretty awesome opportunity. The elders prayed and said, go. So that's what we did. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, man, this door is open. And as long as the door is open, I'm going to go. Now, does that mean it's going to stay open forever? Nope. Nope. A fella came in there and it was, it was almost hilarious. It took one day for them to get me out. One day. He came in and he said, basically, um, it wasn't that long after uh, uh, President Bush came. President Bush came and was a part of uh, our service there. <coughs> but a little while after that, they had a changeover. New chaplain came in. He's looking around and he's like, yeah, I had all the chaplains would come to church. It was kind of cool. And then he said, well, I got all these guys. Why are you here? Now, they weren't paying me. I didn't get a nickel. You know, it wasn't costing the Marine Corps anything. But, uh, but he decided that day, yeah, this is over. You guys start and you go. And, but we had that period of time. And that period of time we took. And so Philadelphia becomes known as being the church of the open door. That when they see that open door, they go. They go be a part. They go do what they can. Sometimes we wonder and we think, is this effective? Is this the most effective use of my time? I know it's more effective than sitting around waiting for an effective use of your time. Right? Moving is always better than sitting. 
Um, every once in a while, we go out to the mosque here in Twin Falls. And whether how effective it is, all I know is the only time I can get around, you know, 30, 40 uh, Muslims in one place at one time is when they're walking out of the mosque. So when they come out of prayer on Friday, <clears throat> people who are willing to go along with Bill can stand out, engage them, begin to talk to them, try to share the gospel, offer them tracts, give them things that they might be able to read or do in their own language. That door's open. The day may come when they don't let us do that no more. When they say, nope, you're not coming here. But the door's open now. We also have opportunity. Uh, almost every day, Bill is out at Planned Parenthood trying to do what he can so people will stop aborting babies because unborn lives matter. And so he's there. And he, and he does what he can. That may not always stay that way. Yeah, it was, he was kind of popular for a while. Bill was pretty popular. Everybody loved him. And then one day he showed up with a sign that said, Babies are murdered here. And that pretty much was the end of his popularity. <laughs> Is that not true? Last I checked, that's what they do. So, there's a door. Ministry opportunity, right? A chance we can go. Sometimes we're sitting here and somebody walks through the door and, and they're in need of help. An effective door of ministry has just opened. Now it might close five minutes later. But it's open right now. One of the things that's important for the church of Philadelphia, and I think it's important for an effective church today, is to be willing to go through the open doors that God brings you. Now, it's not always just here. God gives you open doors every day. You find yourself out at the grocery store, and maybe you're in a hurry to go somewhere, but I bet you bump into somebody who could probably use some of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Now, you may not want to stop, you may not want to talk to them, you may not walk through the open door. But one of the things that marked the church of Philadelphia was they were the church of the open door. Jesus said, I keep giving you open doors and you keep walking through them. And that's one of the things I want to characterize who I am. That when those opportunities come, and they're not always pleasant, <laughs> but they're always good to take that opportunity to bear witness who Jesus Christ is. And he, <coughs> he tells them three reasons why he gives them an open door. Look at the three reasons he gives them. Three things. First, he gives them an open door because they were dependent on the Lord's strength. What does he say? For you have a little strength. For you have. That word for is hoti in the Greek. It means because. So I've opened up this door. Of opportunity for you that no one can shut. And you're willing to walk through it because there's an understanding. You have a little strength. So if I only have a little strength, what do I need to rely on? i got to rely on God's strength. Right? Any of you ever start to tell somebody something, try to share your faith, but you have nothing to say before you start? That never happened to you guys? Just a, I don't know if this brings you comfort or it don't. But the moment I shake somebody's hand, I don't already have a conversation in mind. When I begin by introducing myself to somebody, or I start witnessing, I don't already have a list of scripture that I'm going to work my way through. I don't have this little mini-sermon planned. 
All I got is the willingness to walk through a door, engage a person, and then let's see where it goes. Sometimes you get shut down really fast. Like, don't talk to me. Okay. (laughs) That makes it pretty quick. Sometimes it goes long. Sometimes they want to tell you what's going on in their life and they want to share things and, and a bigger opportunity opens up, right? But we have to recognize when that comes not about the plans we have or what we have worked out. <coughs> we all have one thing in common. We're all broken. Okay? We're all one, one part or another of a pot mess. And we take that and we give it to God and we say, I know I have, I have little strength. I know you have what I need. So I need to be dependent on Christ, right? What is it that Jesus told his disciples? He said, when you get brought before the magistrates and you get brought up in court and they drag you before the the city elders, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Holy Spirit will give you utterance when it's time. So I don't always know, but I know the one who does know. And I just want him to guide. Dependence... On the Lord was the first mark. They had a little strength. That's enough to reach up for Jesus and say, I need a little more. Right? I need a little more boldness. I need a little more confidence. They were dependent on Him. Second thing, they were dedicated to God's Word. What's the second thing? You have kept my Word. You have kept my Word. Here's another thing that you need to know. The Holy Spirit can't draw to your remembrance things you've never looked at. In other words, he's not going to give you a scripture verse you've never read in your life. He's not going to remind you, what is our part? I've got to pour the word of God in. You have kept my word. What's that word keep mean? You guard it. You treasure it. It's valuable to you. If something's valuable to you, you know what? You want to be close to it. If something's valuable to you, you know, you want to shine it up. I just drove the truck through the rocket car wash today. Ask me how many times I washed my other truck. Go ahead, I dare you. Yeah, I'm not sure. I was afraid that pieces would fall off if I went through a, a car wash like that. Why did I wash it? It has value to me. matters to me. So what's that mean? I want to take care of it. It matters to me. It's valuable to me. I want to take care of it. It's no different with our wives, our children, or the Word of God. If it matters to you, if it's valuable to you, then you want to have it. Today, it's so easy. Once upon a time, in order to carry your Bible with you, you actually had to have it. Now, in order to carry a Bible with you, all you got to do is have a phone. Right? And if you've got a phone, you might be able to carry like 12 versions. You can have anything you want. So, it makes it so much easier. What is it that was set apart the church of the open door? They kept, they treasured, they valued God's Word. And if I value it, I spend time in it. If I value it, I want to pour it into my life. If it matters to me, I want to keep it close to me. Does that make sense? So they had a little strength. They're trusting in God's strength. And they're dedicated to God's word. Think about what Jesus said about that. Right? Let's just, just, just consider what it is that Jesus said about his word. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Listen. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them... I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house. 
But it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descends, the floods come, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was his fall. What's the key to being able to stand through tough times to make it through the storm? Hold fast to God's word. We hold fast to that which he's given us. Look, everybody wants to hear from God. I bet all of us at one time or another have said, God, speak to me. And he has. It's on your lap. It's on your lap. God spoke at various times and in various ways through the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his son. It's all right here. But in order for this to get in here, what do I got to do with it? I got to pour it in. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? How many words? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They kept the word of God. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourself. He says, Don't go look in the mirror and see the dirt on your face and then turn away from the mirror and, and forget it. We come to the Word of God, and the Word of God is going to provoke us. It's going to say, (coughs) this is an issue, this is a problem, this is something i got to deal with in my life. Deal with it. Deal with it. Let the Word of God... The Bible says it's a sharp, two-edged sword, right? It's like a surgical instrument. It can cut between the thoughts and the intent. That's, That's a pretty precise slice, right? It can cut between the thoughts and the intent of your heart. The Word of God will do surgery on you, but what do I got to do? Pour it in. Got to read the Word and pray every day. Not every other day, every third day. Read the Word. I'm not telling you to read the whole book. I'm just saying pour it in. Pour it in. The key to my life changing and me not being the man I was once upon a time was the fact that I carried in my pocket a New Testament and every time I had a thought that was was um, a thought that was uh, going in the opposite direction of the Lord. A thought to do something, think something, be something, whatever. I pulled it out. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, I can wash myself with the water of the Word. So I'd open up the Word of God and I'd allow the Word of God to wash through my mind. Pretty soon my mind's not thinking about that girl or or going and getting drunk or partying or whatever. Now my mind's thinking about what I'm reading. And as soon as my mind was thinking about that, I close it up and say, Thank you, Lord. Your word declares that I can bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And I closed the book up, put it in my pocket, and I went on my day. That's how I got through. That's just practically taking the word of God and utilizing the word of God to, to affect that change in our life. The third thing that they did, I've op- I set up an open door before you that, that no one can shut because you have a little strength. You kept my word. And you have not denied my name. It's loyalty to Jesus Christ. Remember, the flip side to denial is confession. You with me? Confess the name. Jesus says, if you confess my name before men, I will confess your name where? Before the Father, right? So we want to we live lives of confession, which means I'm loyal to Jesus. I'm standing with Jesus. <coughs> if, if everybody's against him... In a room, God expects me to stand up and be for him. I'm standing with Jesus. The whole room might say, 
Christians are idiots, stupid, morons. I can't believe they believe anything that's in that book. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. It's lame. Well, knock yourself out. I'm one of those dumb, lame people who say I'm standing with Jesus. I'm standing with him. And, and I'm going to, I want to proclaim his name. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. Denial is the opposite. We want to confess. We want to confess. You have not denied my name. I want to confess the name of Jesus. I want to say, yes, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my God and King. So what was it that kept the open door? They had a little strength. They relied on the strength of the Lord. They kept the Word of God. They treasured it. They valued it. It was an important part of their life. (coughs) And third... They did not deny his name. They confessed him. They confessed him. That provided an open door. That provided... You want an open door in your life? That's what you do. That's what you do. Jesus will set before you an open door. Now in verse 9 we see the protection that the Lord gives. Look what it says. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. The first thing we see in the protection the Lord gives to this church. Okay, I've opened this door, but I'm going to give you protection. He never says he's going to stop that. He never says he's going to stop the persecution. He never says he's going to make them say nice things to them. He won't allow them to unfriend them on Facebook. Or to hammer them in Twitter or whatever whatever other things they might use. He doesn't say that, but what he does say is, I'm going to honor you. There will be a day when you will be honored. I'm always, when I think about this section in, in the Church of Philadelphia, I always think of Mary. You guys know Mary, right? She, she's visited by an angel, told that she's going to give birth to the Christ child, the greatest honor a woman could ever have. And her entire life, everybody thought she was a no-good-for-nothing whore. Who cheated on her husband. Her whole life. But Jesus says here with the church of Philadelphia. There will be a day. When all those people. Who said and did all those things. Are going to bow down. They're going to bow down before you. And know. I loved you. One day all those people who ridiculed and mocked and and gave Mary grief, one day they're going to bow down, not to worship Mary as Lord, they're going to bow down because the Lord, Jesus Christ, says, you bow. Because I loved her. You bow because I loved him. You bow before those who you hated and you starved and you persecuted and you did all those things. <clears throat> those who were thought the scourge of the earth, Paul says. We're, we've become the offscouring. We're considered worse than the worst. You pay any attention to the news? You have at least one presidential candidate that thinks the biggest problem in the United States is you. Welcome to the radar. However, you may be thought the offscouring and hated. You go around the world, see where Christians are loved. Yeah, try it in Saudi Arabia. Stand on a corner, pull out a Bible. How long do you think that'll work? 
Yeah, no time. Well, China, Japan. How about Korea? Go around the world. Not even allowed to do it in Israel, by the way. All the way around the world. It's, it's funny. There's this, there's this uh, attitude toward Christian. But, but Jesus said, there will be a day when you will be exalted. All who have been humbled, humble yourself before the Lord. And what will he do? He'll lift you up. He'll lift you. Remember Joseph? He was humble. He is a man in prison. Nobody cared what he had to say. But one day Pharaoh lifted him up. And what happened? Everybody bowed. Everybody bowed. This is what Jesus is talking about. This, this protection that he gives. There will be a day. There will be a time. When they will come worship before your feet. And know that I have loved you. I love that phrase. I have loved you. We see it pulled from Isaiah 45, 14. It says, Thus says the Lord, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains. They shall bow down to you. They shall make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. Surely God is in you and there is no other other God. That day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They shall know that I have loved you. We see in Isaiah 43, 1 through 4. It says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, <coughs> O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. God says that they will come when everybody will know that I am the Lord and I loved you. You mattered to me. That's the first promise of the protection of God. That day will be there. But there's a second one. It says also, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you <coughs> from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's an interesting verse. It's interesting for, for at least four reasons. First, he says, I will keep you from the hour. The word from is the word ek. It means I will keep you out of. The most natural um, definition for from is a sense of removal. I will keep you from. It's not talking about I'm going to preserve you through. He says I will keep you from the hour of trial. Next we see the definite article. Before the word hour, the hour, and before the word trial or tribulation. I will keep you from the hour of the trial. The hour of the trial means this is talking about a specific period of time, not just trials in general. A very specific trial. And this is a trial that is to come upon whom? 
the whole world. This is a worldwide trial. This is a worldwide tribulation that is to come upon whom specifically? Those who are earth dwellers. All the way through the book of Revelation, you're going to run into this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, those who dwell on the earth. Literally, it is earth dwellers, earth dwellers, earth dwellers. The judgment of earth dwellers is used ten times. Every time it's used, it is always used of unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth versus those who are in heaven. Those who are with God. There's a purpose. What is the purpose of this trial? To test those who are earth dwellers. What is it that God's looking for in this test? You'll see it as we work our way through the book of Revelation. He's looking for repentance. You're going to see that phrase over and over again. All these things occurred and still they would not repent. They would not repent. What happens if you repent? The Bible says that Jesus, God, commands that all men everywhere repent and believe. That's how you come to faith. All these things go on, but they would not come to faith. In fact, we read about it in Revelation 6.10. It says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on the earth dwellers? How long? It's the martyrs under the throne crying out. How long? Those who have been killed for their faith. How long, God, until you judge the earth dweller, the rebellious, the unbeliever? How long? That's what chapter 6 through 19 is all about. In Revelation 17, 8, it says this. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who are the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, will marvel. Look how it describes them. Whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now what's the key to being saved? Where's your name written? In the book of life. If your name's not in the book of life, what happens? Well, according to Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22, your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. You go to hell. The only way you get in as if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. What did it call earth dwellers? Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now sometimes people look at this scripture and they say, this one we just read, that He's going to save them from the hour of the trial that will come on the whole world. These are very descriptive phrases, right? That will come upon the whole world to test (coughs) or try the unbeliever. And they say, well, what he's talking about is going to preserve them through. Now that's a nice concept, but here's the reality. That's not in the book of Revelation anywhere. We're going to, we're going to, we're, we're still one more week before we hit chapter 4. We hit chapter 4, we'll spend a lot of time talking about the rapture and, and, and working our way into chapter 4 and 5 where the church is in heaven. <clears throat> As we do that, We'll discuss a lot of these things again. But we need to understand, there's nothing in Revelation that says God's going to preserve the church or the believer through. You have 144,000 Jewish 
um, evangelists that God's going to send out. We're going to meet them in chapter 7. Uh, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. I don't care who knocked on your door and told you different. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that's who they are. That's where they come from. 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes. That 144,000 is still going to be around in chapter 14. So God's going to preserve them. I also know that God's going to preserve the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel won't cease to exist. But they're going to get hammered because uh, Zechariah tells us two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to be wiped out and one-third is going to live through. So God's going to allow the nation to arrive at the end. But for the Gentile believer who comes to faith after the rapture, listen to what the scripture says. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. What's in white robes? That's the wedding garment, right? That's putting on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. With palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. (coughs) All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders said to me, Who are these in white robes, and where did they come from? So I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones, listen, who come out of the great tribulation. So these are the ones who come to faith during the tribulation period. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how we all got saved, right? Washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore... They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night. He who sits on the throne will dwell with them. They shall neither, listen, hunger anymore, nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the saved through the tribulation. Does it sound like they were preserved through hard times? Not really. What about Revelation chapter 11 verse 7? And when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Does that sound like preservation? That sounds like martyrdom, doesn't it? That the beast is going to overcome them and kill them. Now remember, Jesus defeated death... So death isn't the end. Death is the doorway to the presence of God, right? Oh, death, where's your sting? Yeah, death doesn't doesn't have the effect on a believer that it has on anybody else. Death is the doorway to God. In Revelation 13, 7, it says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints, just in case we're not sure who he's talking about. Saints, believers. To make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he's going to overcome them. I would surmise if he's going to overcome them, he's going to kill them. Why? Well, look at Revelation 13, 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, 
that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be, what's it? Killed. How do I know a believer at the end of the tribulation period? He's not going to worship the beast, right? Is it possible to make a mistake and worship the beast? The Bible says you worship the beast, it's it. In order to worship the beast, you'll take the number of the beast. Which, by the way, is not some chip you inject in one of your children to be able to find them if they get lost. That's not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast requires worship. Worship. A believer won't worship the beast. And what will happen to him? They'll kill him. A believer won't worship the beast. And what will happen to him? They'll kill him. What's going to happen to believers? They're going to kill him. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. In Revelation 20 verse 4 it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded (coughs) for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or the image and not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What's the end going to be for those believers? I told you death is just a doorway to the Lord. They're going to be conducted into the presence of God where they'll rule and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Death is not the end. Death is a doorway for the believer. But those, I believe, in the tribulation period, believers, Gentile believers, are going to die. By the truckload. The 144,000, they will be preserved. The nation of Israel will be preserved, although it's going to get hammered pretty good on that time of the trouble. What is the promise that Jesus is making to the church of Philadelphia? The church who had the open door. The church who had a little strength and relied on Him. The church that kept His word. The church that wouldn't deny His name. What did He say to them? I'm going to keep you out of out of that trial that is to come upon the whole world that is to test the unbeliever. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that those, (coughs) when we come to the time of the Antichrist, it says, (coughs) the Antichrist is not going to be revealed until him who restrains is taken out of the way. Who is he who restrains? Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit reside today? Yeah. The church is salt and light. So if i got to get all the salt and light out, what's got to happen? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, We've not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're reading in a moment. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 52 Behold, I tell you a a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die. We won't all die. Read Revelation. Everybody's dying. But we're not all going to die. We will all be changed in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. For the trump will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Which by the way are Gentiles. And he tells them, hey, I don't want you to mourn as those who have, uh, uh, have no hope for those who have fallen asleep. For he says, the day will come when the voice, the shout of the archangel 
And the voice of God is going to call the church home. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are, what's the phrase? Alive and remain. What's going on in the tribulation period? They're all dying. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. He doesn't come here. We go there. What the, what the church calls the rapture. That word rapture, by the way, is not in the Bible. The word in the Bible is a harpazo. So you can call it the harpazo if you want to. It's a harpazo. And anytime somebody says the word rapture is not in the Bible, I say, well, I believe in the harpazo. What's the harpazo? The snatching away. That's what it means. The snatching away. The day when Christ brings his bride home. I don't see any scripture in the Bible that says the groom before the wedding takes the bride out and beats her over and over again for multiple days upon days, years upon years. And when she's just rightly beaten, he takes her home to the Father. Is that in the Bible? No, but it does talk about the bride being clothed in white, gathered together, and taken to the Father's house, doesn't it? Yeah. So, that's what we see. That's what the Scripture is laying out. What's the purpose behind the message? Look at verse 11. The Lord says, Behold, I am coming how? Quickly. Quickly. What's that mean? Sudden. What did I just read? In, the, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. How quick can you twinkle your eye? It's pretty quick, right? We're okay with that? <coughs> it's pretty quick. Suddenly, quickly, He's going to be there. So what does He tell them? Behold, I am coming. Hold on. I'm coming for you. Hold on. I'm coming for you. But until I come, what's he say? Hold fast. Oh, we saw that on Sunday. That means hold on and don't let go. Hold on for all your worth. Cling to, be loyal to Jesus. Man, I'm with him. I'm with you, Lord. I picked a side. I picked a side, and I want everybody to know the side that I picked. I picked you, Lord. I want to be with you, Lord. I want to, I want to. How many times we've gone through Revelation chapter 2? Two times in chapter 2, two times in chapter 3, four times altogether, the Lord has told the church, hold fast. Hold on. I'm coming. Hold on. I'm coming. Look, I don't care how bad it is, whatever crazy things are going on in your life, when you hear that message, it ought to give you hope. That I can hold on a little longer. Hold on. I'm coming. That's what Jesus says to him. That's what he tells this church. man. He says, hold on. I'm coming. I'm coming for you. Why? I'm coming. Don't let go that no one would do what? Take your crown. Jesus said that he has a crown of life for all those who have loved his appearing. Means I go to bed with the hopes I get to see Jesus. I get up in the morning with the hopes I get to see Jesus. I everything. If, if Jesus is my treasure, the thing I value in life, I want to see Him. I want to look into those eyes. My entire life, a little red dot on the rope. My entire life is being lived out in an effort to stand before one time and only one time before my Lord God and King to look Jesus in the eyes and get to hear one time. Well done. Only the red dot. That's all the time I get. 
After that, I don't know the rest of it. But I know after the red dot, I get to stand before Jesus Christ. I get to look in His eyes. Me, myself, my moment. Among all of creation, I get my moment before the King. One chance. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hold fast till I come. Hold on. Hold on. I don't care who becomes president. That didn't change. Right? Here's the good news. I'm going to be in Israel when the president's elected. So if I don't like how it turned out, I'm staying. (laughs) You guys don't sound like you have very much hope. (coughs) But no matter what happens, what are we supposed to do? Hold on till he comes. Let's look at the promise to the overcomer. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the city, on the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. I, when I look at this section, there's two words that jump out at me. My God, my God, my God, my God. You know what? The relationship that Jesus has with the Father is different than the one you and I have. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. What did Jesus say? Pray thus. Our Father who art in heaven. He's telling the disciples, this is how you pray. It's all the same for us. Our Father. But when Jesus said he's going to heaven, he says, I'm going to my God and your God. What's that mean? The relationship Jesus has with the Father is not the same as the relationship we have. Right? They're the same DNA. We're not. There's a difference there. When Jesus says, my God, my God, my God, He's emphasizing my relationship with my Father. He's natural, if you will. He's the natural Son. He's the uh, same DNA, the same essence as the Father. You and I, we're unnatural. Right? We're adopted. We're brought in. We're made heirs and joint heirs together with Him. (coughs) So we're brought into the family. But, there's two things He's telling us here. First, you're going to have security. What's the security? You're going to be pillars in the temple of God. You're going to be the pillars of the temple of my God. And you shall go out no more. There's two pillars. Two pillars in the temple. Anybody know the names? What is it, John? Boaz and... Oh, come on. I had Boaz. I need help. Gosh, I can't remember the other name. There's two names, two temples. Boaz means strength. But the idea is you become a permanent part of the temple. Now keep in mind, when we consider the temple on earth, was a separate structure that was built off of a model of what heaven is like. So the temple's not a little place. What's the temple? The whole place. Where are all the people going to be? In the whole place. Where's God going to be? In the whole place. We're going to finally be home. And we're not ever going to leave because it's going to be where we belong. Like the pillar in the temple. You took the pillar out of the temple. What happened to the temple? Yeah, it's not so good, right? The pillar stays. It's permanent part of the structure. We become a permanent part of the structure. But the chapter goes on to say, not only that, but the new... Uh, um, 
<coughs> but I will write on him my new name. I will write on him the name of my God, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. And I will write on him my new name. It says in Revelation 14.1, talking about the 144,000, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him 144,000 having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Foreheads. Ownership. When it says God writes his name on you, it's like, it's like the toy story. When Andy wrote his name on the bottom of the, of the toy, what was the cowboy's name? Woody. Somebody knew, right? He writes his name. What did that show? What did it, what, that was, a, that was a important for Woody, right? It means I belong to him. I'm his toy. Well, for you and I, it means I belong to God. I'm his son. I'm his child. I'm his heir. Join heirs together with Jesus Christ. I'm in a place where I belong. And God's not ashamed to write his name on me. And he's not ashamed to write who I really am on me. He's going to give us a new name. <coughs> we see Revelation 19:16 when Jesus comes back it says he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then in Revelation 22:4 at the very end of the book when we will live happily ever after what's it say? They shall see his face and his name shall be on their Foreheads. I'm going to write my name. I'm going to give them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which comes down out of heaven, and I will give them a new name. I'm going to, I'm going to finally belong. That family, that place, that's home. This place will always be a little empty compared to that place. That's the promise to the church of Philadelphia. That's the church... Everybody who reads Revelation wants to be, just so you know. Nobody's going, you know, I want to be Laodicea. That's next week. Nobody's going, I want to be Sardis, where Jesus said, all you got going for you is you have a name out front, but you're dead. Nobody's saying, I want to be the church at Ephesus that doesn't have love anymore. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying, I want to be the immoral church or the compromising church. What are they saying? Not too many are saying, I want to be Smyrna, by the way, either. Which is the other church that Jesus had nothing bad to say. Because they're all dying for their faith. But everybody says, I want to be Philadelphia. I want to be the church that walks through the open door. I want to be the church that trusts in Him and keeps His word. And stands by Jesus Christ, loyal to Him. Because that church, man, God's got a lot of great promises for it. Ah, and Boaz. There you got the two names for the, <coughs> for the two pillars in the temple. I was going to say Jachbed, but I knew that wasn't right. But I would have been right with the J. So it's close. Not really. So we want, that's what we want. That's the example we want to follow, right? Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. He said that a lot. That's probably something we need to hear. What's the last verse of this section say? That him who has ears. How many of that? I got ears. Anybody else? Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to who? Churches. All of us. Amen? Let's go before the Lord. Father God.